You're listening to Interzone Pod. My name is Gareth Jelly. I'm the editor of Interzone and its free online sister zine, IZ Digital. You can find out more about Interzone and subscribe at interzone.press and more about IZ Digital at interzone.digital. Joining me on the show today is the author Tashan Mehta. Uh, thank you very much, Tashan, for coming on and talking to me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Uh, I I think I first heard of The Liar's Weave a, a while back, maybe maybe when I was uh, talking to Lavanya Lakshminarayan the first time. Um, but for 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 some, I mean, some listeners might not have heard you. They might not have had the ple- had the pleasure of reading your work yet, or, or discovering uh, Tasha Meta. Uh, uh, kind of, who are you, and what do they have to look forward to? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so, I'm an author of two books, The Liar's Weave, and most recently, as recent as last month, Mad Sisters of Essie. Um, I think I describe myself best as a fabulous writer, uh, mainly in the vein of uh, Italo Calvino, but my books change consistently. Uh, so, it's a bit hard to say what I'll do next because the books keep surprising me. Um, but yeah, so both of those books, the first book was a sort of retelling of 1920s Bombay with a boy who had the power to change reality with his lies. And Mad Sisters of Essie is just a completely strange, weird, mad novel set across like three different universes. Uh, but both of those books deal very closely with family. That's a great. Well, we'll we'll come back to all of that um, uh, through the course of the questions, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, when when you were growing up, what what were you reading? You, you mentioned that you kind of see yourself as a fabulist, but uh, yeah, wh- which which novelists, which sort of stories uh, do you think shaped you? <laughs> so I think I started uh, pretty much with the fairy tales. I think we had a children's version of the Grimm's fairy tales that was beautifully illustrated. Um, and then I remember reading Enid Blyton, lots of Enid Blyton, Magic Faraway Tree, um, and all these really fantastic uh, sort of worlds. Um, I didn't, I remember not knowing what a scone was up until 2009, when I finally went to England. Um, and it is not what I expected it to look like at all. Um, <laughs> but it was, it is, it's just, I thought it was like a waffle code because they kept saying they'd fill it with cream and jam. And I was like, well, it must be a waffle cone, but with an S. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I read a lot of those. And then slowly, I think I moved on to the classics. You did the Russians, you did Dostoevsky, you did Tolstoy. And I think I was very heavily influenced by... Um, how they did the psychology of the human mind, uh, both Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, um, and the way in which they sort of peeled their characters apart to kind of understand what makes them sort of tick and why they tick the way they do. Um, And then I think most recently I've sort of moved into, um, I've taken that love of fairy tales and fantasy and the Russian love for sort of peeling apart the mind um, and kind of entwined both of those with the sort of women writer voices that I absolutely love right now, Lily King, Anne Pratchett, Lauren Groff, um, which kind of have this smoothness to them, but also this sort of echoey depth 
it's like you've hit a song ball and it's still sort of echoing. Um, and so I think that's what I'm doing right now in my books, picking up all three of those things and sort of weaving them together. Echoey depth is a wonderful way of putting it. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of a Buddhist song bowl. Um, so I don't know if you've ever seen one, but they're made of metal and you hit them with a wooden stick and they sort of sing. And that singing, that echo of that just kind of stays in the air for about a minute um, or more, depending on the quality. And I love that. That's that's a wonderful way of, of thinking about voice and thinking about sort of, yeah, different things. Um, I, I was listening to a, an interview you gave and you mentioned, um, yeah, you mentioned the Russian writers and you mentioned having, you know, kind of going through all the books in your in your house and your <laughs> and 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 your mum sort of um your, your your mother kind of like start you know getting you more and yeah and yeah I I, I kind of wonder did you yeah w- w- was was that was your was your family situation really kind of supportive Do, you know were, were were they helping you to read more and getting you sort of getting you things that you know you might otherwise not have you know ever known about Oh, absolutely. I was exceptionally lucky because my mum was a journalist. Um, so I think she was very sort of plugged into what the Indian literary scene considered, um, you know, essential reading. So when I was younger, she bought me a whole bunch of books. We had a small little library at home. And then she made me a member of a library. Um, and I lost my first library book. <laughs> and the shame of it meant that I never wanted to read again for ages. Um, And so then I started reading on the sly. So I started taking books out of our home library one by one until one day I went to her and I said, I need a book to read. And she said, you have plenty. And I said, I finished all of them. Um, And so then she she enrolled me in the British Council Library, which was, I think, honestly life-changing. I was introduced to Neil Gaiman there, Terry Pratchett there. And the thing is, I wasn't plugged in to the reading scene. So I always thought, I felt like Terry Pratchett was my secret quiet discovery. <laughs> I felt like Ursula Le Guin was this unknown author no one had heard about, but I'd found her on the shelves. Um And yeah, it just continued from there at every stage, at least up until 18, there were always books that I was guided towards to sort of read. And I think that really helped me have eclectic taste and wide ranging taste. And you, you, you tell this great story. Uh, um, I think it was on the Bound podcast. No, no, it was, it was on the Bound podcast. And it was about um, this, uh, this story your mother told about the ant and the grasshopper. Um, (laughs) And I, I wondered if you could if you could tell that story today because it's a wonderful story and, and you tell it really well. I'm trying to throw in my memory back. So my mother, um, I adore her from the bottom of my heart. She used to say us, um, sing us sometimes, and sometimes tell us good night stories, uh, but they were all horrendously morbid, um, like deeply <laughs> morbid, um, and I mostly I was just traumatized. Um, and one of the stories she told us was the ant and the grasshopper. Um, and the ant and the grasshopper story is um, it's summer and the ant is at home. And he's putting his rugs out um, and he's sort of settling in and he's having a really nice time. And he's just thinking to himself, OK, I need to prepare for winter. So he's heading out and he's looking for food stores and he meets the grasshopper. And the grasshopper is honestly having a ball. He's hopping from leaf to leaf. He's lying in the sun. He's looking at the 
appalling. He's having the best time ever. And the answers to him, hey, FYI, winter is coming. You just need to prepare a little bit. And the grasshopper says, oh, don't worry about it. You worry too much. It's not really a problem. Um, and so the ant slowly starts working hard every single day, starts collecting his stores, and he keeps seeing the grasshopper. And the grasshopper is always lying around and having fun. And he keeps saying, hey, you need to prepare. Like, winter is coming. There won't be any food. And the grasshopper is always lackadaisical and always relaxed. And he makes fun of the ant. And he tells the ant, you know, it's absolutely fine. Don't worry about it. Um, and the ant slowly but surely fills his tiny little cubby hole with all the food that he needs for the winter. He builds a little fire. He is a really warm shawl in the story. And sure enough, uh, winter and snow set in. Um, and he settles down beside the fire. And he's going to be fine. He can see himself through. Um, and on one particularly cold night, there's a knock on the door um, and he opens it and it's the grasshopper. And the grasshopper is this beautiful bright green, but now he's turned ever so slightly pale and he's shivering and he says, I'm so cold and I'm so hungry. Will you please let me in? And the ant says, I'm so sorry, I warned you, winter was coming. You should have prepared. I can't let you in now. And he closes the door on him. Two nights later, the grasshopper knocks again, and this time he's a slightly paler green, and he's shivering, and he says, please, I'm absolutely starving. I won't survive here anymore. Please let me in. And the ant says, I'm so sorry I warned you. I told you this would happen. I don't have enough for you. I can't let you in. And he closes the door on him. And the grasshopper very slowly, very quietly goes to the side. And two nights later, he's found dead, absolutely frozen. And from bright green, he's turned into this awful pale silver. Wow. Um, and now when my mother told me that story, and I, I think it's really, really important to add, she was crying oh. by the end of it. And so... I just burst into tears, like hysterical tears. And my mom's like, no, no, the ant was correct. The ant is good. Don't worry. And I just, I was inconsolable because I remember thinking to myself, there is no human, there's just no reason why he couldn't have let him in. You could have just had slightly less for the winter and you would have been fine and somebody else would have survived. And, and my mom realized that she hasn't quite taught me the moral the way it was supposed to go. <laughs> It, it, it's it's a really you, you you tell it wonderfully and and i'm sure your 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 mother did as well and, and i feel like there's a it works on so many levels the, the 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 way the kind of function of stories and the way that stories don't don't do what we necessarily want them to do which can be a really good thing and and also you know can make you cry and and so yeah it, it, it it's such a such a great story it also taught me from a very young age the importance of what detail, um, because I read the same story in a children's book the other day, um, and it's just a grasshopper knocks once, um, and the ant opens the door and says, you can't get any food, and the grasshopper goes quietly to the side of the house and says to himself, oh, this is entirely my fault. I will now die happily, uh. um, having learned my lesson. Um, and obviously, that's not how my mother told it to me. Um, and and also the focus on color, which is which is you know all through your your work or, or you know the, the the very very sort of vibrant sort of and color and 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 the the sadness that comes in in your telling of that story there as well. Hmm. Yeah, color is hugely important. I think I see with the vividness. My sister's an artist as well. 
Um, so I just, I live in a household that has an emphasis in the visual and I see the fabulous and the fantastical very sort of woven with the visual. You also said in that interview that that, that story was, what was the phrase you used? I, I, think, it, I think you said it, it defined your worldview as a writer mm. because of the way it kind of spoke to spoke of power mm. and of where power lies could you could you talk a bit about that I think it was my first introduction um and I obviously I wasn't smart enough to understand it then but looking back on it now it was my first introduction to power structures and how we utilize power when we have it and what that sort of does when power flows in between human beings. Because when the ant opened that door, all of the power was resting with him. All of the choice uh, was completely resting with him. And he didn't use that power and disseminate it. He kept it and he kept it very closed and he kept it in my head to sort of climb on a high horse um, and lecture the grasshopper rather than save a life. Um, And I think I've, consistently been interested in who seeks power, who keeps power, um, and how do they utilize it? And if they try and hold on to it, does it stay or does it not stay? I find we often think of power in broader strokes as well, don't we? We think of governments and we think of regimes and we think of people with a lot of power to change the world. But I think I'm more curious about power between friends and power between family members, like the quiet powers that we hold on to and that we sort of wrestle for and that we sort of execute in order to feel good about ourselves or feel a certain version of ourselves. And what does that say about us? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I don't want to jump ahead, but I, I was thinking about the traveller and, and, the, and, the, and the, the sort of power dynamics there. And I... Yeah, that's that's a really interesting key, I think, to some of the some of the ideas that are running through your stories. Absolutely, one hundred percent, and also how how you perceive your possession of power and how others perceive your possession of power. It's just deeply interesting to me. I read once that power is liquid; it doesn't stay still. Uh-huh. It's consistently moving. It's not an object you hold. It's water, basically. Um, and I think that makes for really electric writing. <laughs> do, do, you, do, you feel, do you feel like as a writer, you, you, you yourself have power, that you, that you are kind of empowered because you're a storyteller? I do think so. I think there's um, an inherent power in articulation, I think when you say something, um, just by the act of carving it into words, you sort of carve it a bit deeper into reality. Um, And it has that sort of power to live in somebody's mind. Um, And more often than not, I've I've talked about this a lot recently with friends, um, but also in my talks. More often than not, if you can't find the language to describe your experience, your experience disappears. Um, It doesn't get that solidity. It doesn't get that form. And that's why we work so hard to get the language, because if we have the language, we can hold it and we can keep an impression of it somewhere. Um, And I think as writers, that gives us enormous power because we have the words or we can use the words to look at the difficult things in life and sort of set that down and sort of etch that in. Right. 
That's yeah, and and your your family, your family sort of supported your your journey, you know, in, in you know towards being a writer. You you studied overseas at Warwick University. How how did yeah how did that support and how did that time at Warwick sort of you know help you to find the language, help you to find those you know to to sort of you know hone the tools or or find those words. It was hugely transformative. Um, I think more than anything else, I found friends who were doing similar sort of things to what I was doing. Maybe not in the writing itself, but in their aspirations or where they wanted to go or who they wanted to be. Um, and I don't. We don't talk enough of the power of having found your people. When you find your people who see the same way in which you see, you shine brighter and you become bigger. Um, it's almost like you feed of their energy. Um, and I think Warwick sort of gave me those people that are still my best friends. They are still in my life. And I think that sort of changed the game for me. Because in India, and I love India, and I love how supportive my family was, but it was still, I, but the degree I did was English literature and creative writing. It is the strangest degree <laughs> any you could do if you come from India. It has zero job prospects. Um, and it was really lovely to go to a university and meet people who wanted to do the same thing, who were sort of united in their pursuit of this as a profession um, and sort of bounce off their own ideas or their own way of looking at art and compare it to my way of looking at art. But I think also what the UK gave me, which was hugely beneficial, was an understanding that cultural ways of looking differ. And often what I took to be good art was just white art. Um, and that's just because the canon had been handed down to me when I was young. You read Shakespeare, you read Dickens, you read all of these one they're good authors, they're fantastic authors, but your canon is set. It cannot be touched. And you assume they are fantastic because it's been handed down to you. And the more I tried to apply what I was learning at Warwick for my own stories, the more everything just started to break. Because the way you look in India, the way you look, I can't even say in India, the way you look in my personal experience, because India is so huge and so varied, just didn't fit into what they were telling me good writing should sound like. And that was scary. That was petrifying. Because then you just have to go in there and sort of tear the whole thing apart to find a structure that works. Right. Because and and so sort of, yeah, throw, throwing out the canon is is really interesting. And also, I, I think it, it was your your Strange Horizons roundtable where you talk about you know putting India in inverted commas um, because you you didn't really. It, if I, I think I think the way you put it was it, it was more about your personal perspective and you you know your those those things sort of driving your writing more than a particular you know country or place. Is that still is that, is that still the way you see it? Is is it very much about finding, you know, find finding that thing inside yourself, regardless of where you happen to be? That's such a great question, Gareth. It is it is very much still that, and I think it's because and Lavanya and I were having a conversation about this recently, and Summit and I have had it as well, and so is Indra, um, about how 
India is so large and so various and so multifarious to pick it up as a label and apply it to my personal life experience or way of looking is to narrow it. Um, and you just, you can't do that. There's so many different versions of India. Lavanya had this really fantastic line at a talk I just did where she said, for every temple in India, there's a tech park. Um, <laughs> and there just really, there just really is. Um, there's just so many versions of this country that are often contradictory and often clash um, that I think the only way to sort of write about it is to allow it to, work itself into you and then let your imagination do whatever the hell it wants. Um, so basically my goal right now is to see India as the dominant culture. And if it's the dominant culture, I'm not thinking too much about a gaze that doesn't understand the culture or that needs more details to feel it's Indian enough or that needs certain markers to feel like they can hold on to it. I'm writing it as the bones with which I can make my imaginative worlds. That, that's a great answer. Um, <laughs> the, 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 um, the, the, the other thing I was, the other thing I, I, I remember you saying in that round table was about how, uh, you know, a lot of your reading was Indian writing in English or, you know, in Indian, you know, mm. fiction in English. And you felt that there was a, you felt that the, the lack of maybe re of reading Indian work in other languages mm. was 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 a problem, and you were kind of you know, I think in the, in that roundtable you mentioned that you were kind of looking at ways of of filling those gaps. Is is that sort of an ongoing project as well? Sort of connecting with uh, other 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 writing in other languages for you know for whatever reasons. I think so. Um, I think what I'm finding, I work as a developmental, a freelance developmental editor as well. And um, I've been working a bit with Amazon Crossing that does exclusively does translations. Um, and I've realized oh, the ways in which other languages see is just astonishing. It's so startling. And when you try and lift the soul of that and push that into English, you see English do really startling things and really gorgeous things in order to try and keep up with story structures and ways of looking. Um, and so I think to me, there's such imaginative richness, but just such diversity in ways of seeing and ways of understanding in translated literature. Um, that I'm consistently trying to sort of reach a bit closer for that um, and see if there's, it's just inspiring. Mm -hmm. And so, so you must be working with, with, you know, translators and the original writers and that, that must be a really, really exciting, uh, yeah, like, like, like an exciting place in terms of the language and also in terms of, again, meeting people and, you know, expanding that community. Absolutely. And it's also just, I have enormous respect for translators. What they do is just, it's a magic act. It's lifting the soul from one body and creating a new body and sort of transferring that soul into it. Um, and the, the nuance you have to have in both the original language and the language you're translating into in order to carry that soul over is just astonishing to me. I don't think anything's shown me the depth of what language can do and what language 
can create in a reader's mind than working on those translations. We've often had whole calls about one word. Wow. Because just trying to find that right word that will allow that sentence to pop so that that paragraph can pop so that that whole chapter can pop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and getting it wrong and the whole sort of house of cards falls down. Exactly. It just kind of just flattens, right? But if you get that word right, everything just sings again. Yeah, back to the back to the the echoing depths. Yeah, <laughs> you sort of. T- <laughs> yeah, I seem to really love that one. T- tap it just right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's that's really intriguing. Um, move, moving to your your first book, The Liars Weave. Um, this this is available like for people listening. This is available as a Kindle book, I think, still in the in the UK and the US, certainly in the US, um, and yeah. Uh, it, it takes this sort of real it, it takes something real it takes this idea of the birth charts and then it does something very brilliantly speculative with that um can you talk a bit about the story behind that book so the the original idea for the liars weave came to me at warwick university it was actually um i did the first chapter for my thesis um and i kind of I've always been fascinated by birth charts because I got mine done when I was 13 years old. Um, And I think you're meant to do it when you're born. But I got mine done when I was 13 years old because I'm Parsi, so we don't follow it. Um, And I remember sort of reading about when I would get married or how rich I would be and what my worst years would be and what my best years would be. Um, And I remember sort of feeling this voyeuristic delight for my own life. Um, And this sort of weird sort of eagerness to see if it matches up and to see (laughs) if my reality would actually become that. Um, And so I took all that voyeuristic delight and all that eagerness and I sort of channeled it into a book idea because I said, okay, what if all of these were actually true? Would that be freeing? Would that be delightful? Would that be scary? Um, Would that just basically be awful for the people involved? And then it's sort of entwined with an idea. It was sort of a line that I had from a short story, which was the worst lies are the ones we tell ourselves. And that sort of sparked this idea of this boy who could change reality by lying, Um, but he couldn't see the effect of his lie. So if there's a pencil case in front of him and it's black and he said it was blue, it would become blue for everyone else, but it would stay black for him. And obviously that's fine for the tiny lies. But if you're a tiny little boy who wants to wants power and wants to be important and wants to feel valued, those lies start getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and so I think to me, the central crux, crux of this book has always been powerlessness in power. Like he has ultimately large and grand power and very, very deep powerlessness embedded into that power. Um, so that was interesting to play around with. Hmm. Um, that, 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 that's like a, an incredibly powerful sort of SF or speculative idea or, you know, or, or fabulous idea. Um, did, did you always see yourself as a speculative, fabulous writer or did you, did you start out kind of thinking, I'm going to write something, you know, I'm going to write, you know, literary fiction or, or historical fiction or something different? Um, I think I always saw myself as a literary writer, 
but only because I didn't know what categories meant. So I always knew I would have something speculative in it, but I just assumed that was part of the literary canon because obviously I'd grown up on Garcia Marquez um, and Mario Vargas Llosa um, and Cortazar, and all of them are very much marketed to you as literary, even though they are extremely speculative. Mm. Um, and so I'd never seen the fabulous or the magical or the weird as distinct from my work. I don't think it's possible because I, I see the world like that. I see the world as having magic in it or the inexplicable in it consistently. Um, and I think that always finds its way into my book ideas. So I always knew I would write speculative fiction. I just didn't know it was called speculative fiction. That's a yeah. That's a that's a great way of putting it. And and I think also the, these boundaries are incredibly arbitrary, right? Absolutely. So so we you know we we see them and we and we use them. But uh, did did do you feel that as well? That in terms of the particularly maybe right now because you're in the middle of it, the, the the marketing side of things. Do you feel that the the boundaries that that are put up between these genres are problematic? I think they are. And I think they're deeply complex as well. Um, I understand why we have definitions of fantasy. So Mad Sisters of Essie has been marketed as a fantasy book in India. And it very much is because it's set in an alternate reality. But it doesn't do what traditional mainstream fantasy does. Um, and so I have this weird dichotomy where my readers won't pick up my book because they think it's fantasy and it's not made for them when it is. And a lot of mainstream fantasy readers who want, say, a quest are picking up my book and saying, well, this is not the fantasy I thought I was getting. Um, I'm disappointed. So it's this interesting sort of balance, I think, between expectations. Um, but I don't think you could market Mad Sisters of Essie as just literary because it is fantasy. It is set in a whole alternate reality across three universes. Um, and I, I'm proud of that. And I love that. And I think, I honestly, fantasy genre has been doing ridiculously innovative things for years now, like sometimes far more innovative than the literary novels I've been reading. Um, and I think what needs to change is reader understandings of what genre is and what genre can do. I think we need to sort of update, especially in India. I think in the West, it's a lot it's a lot more fluid. People are a lot more aware of what fantasy can do. But in India, I think there needs to be a bit more of an updating on what they think fantasy is for and why we write it and what it can do. It, it's interesting about expectations as well. One of my students was reading um, Life of Pi, and 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 they were quite and 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 they were kind of trying to express to me there um, how sort of perplexing it was because none none of it seemed to be following any rules. And and I, I was listening, kind of you know very, very patiently, just sort of helping him with the language and thinking to myself, well, I th I, th I think that's deliberate. <laughs> So yeah, I think these yeah, ex but expectations are also part of it. Like, like what the reader is expecting to sort of see. Like you know, why why is there, why why don't these things make sense? <laughs> I, I and I agree with you on. Um, I think mostly when a book, often when a book does badly, it's because marketing has pitched it in a certain way that reader expectations are just way off. 
um, and they're unable to meet the book as the book because they keep expecting it to become, I don't know, prom queen post page three, and that's not who the book is. Um, they just need to meet it as it is, but they haven't, the expectations have been set correctly. Mm-hmm. I, I love that idea of, yeah, meet, meeting the book, like meeting the book that that is in front of you rather than sort of trying to sort of, yeah, you know, yeah, get frustrated by what, what isn't there. Yeah, for sure. Read it on its own terms. Um, uh, I, I also saw, I think it was on Instagram that, that the Mad Sisters of Essie had snuck into, was it the world literature section of the bookshop <laughs> or the international? Yeah, it really did. I love that. It had, yeah, it was under the international fiction shelf. That made me very happy. That, that just seeing that there for some reason, I just thought that that's wonderful. This idea that it it, it sort of like sort of broken its bounds and appeared somewhere else inside the bookshop. I really, I honestly love that because a lot of the conversations um, I've been having around this book is people have been asking what is Indian about Mad Sisters of Essie? Um, and it's Indian because I wrote it and I'm Indian. Um, and my life experiences are in there and my thought processes are in there and my upbringing is in there. And the way in which I look at the world, which is shaped by my country and my culture is in there. Um, it's just all been scrambled up to make a different reality, but it's all very much in there. So I love that the sisters were like, okay, now I'm just going to go into international fiction as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, go, go, going back to that Strange Horizons roundtable, you you mentioned this seesaw between the fantastic and the real, uh, where where yeah. you can't really tell where you're standing. And, and yesterday, I read something. Um, uh, actually, kind of this kind of came via um, via Indra and his on Blue Sky because he mentioned Edward Young, and there was an Edward Young quote about making films not being re- not being about retelling dreams, but about mm. giving life to dreams so that they resemble reality closely, and about how oh, beautiful like that's great, right? And and the way individuals connect with this fabricated reality is the power of film sort of dreams, reality, story. Um, and, and that's all very central to another of your stories, uh, the one that was in the Galant's book of South Asian science fiction, The, the Traveller. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind mm-hmm. of, yeah, thinking about all those things, is, is storytelling for you akin to giving life to dreams? I think very much yes. Um, I don't think I would have said this until after Mad Sisters Vessi. But Mad Sisters of Essie was very much fueled on this Dostoevsky quote that I absolutely love, um, which is, it happened as always in a dream when you leap over space and time and the laws of life and mind and you stop only there where your heart delights. And I think that was very much a guiding sort of, it was the North Star for writing Mad Sisters of Essie. And ever since then, um, I've looked back at The Liar's Weave and at all of my short stories, um, and it's been pointed out to me that I take a lot of pleasure in setting up a reality and then melting it. Um, I'm almost very, very keen on something to turn liquid at some point, um, and your stable ground is sort of taken away from you. And dreams are very much like that. Mm-hmm. Everything is possible. Everything is fluid. There are no rules, as your student told you. Um, and I think I sort of 
I love that very much. And I think it speaks to something extremely primal in us. I don't entirely know what it is, but it certainly, it, it does resonate and it does pull to pull us towards it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, I, I love that idea of, of setting up a reality and then, and then melting it or, 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 or sort of, sort of showing something that seems to be solid and to to actually be incredibly liquid which is you know through the in in the traveler through these different voices and different different perspectives you get this sort of you the the reader's idea of what they're of this of this world is is being re, you know, reshaped all the time and i think that's really kind of powerful and really and really and it, and the the, the process it, the process is just really compelling. It's just a very compelling sort of question to ask and to sort of follow through. And the answers are not important. The the questions are important. I love I love readers like you, Gareth. Um, <laughs> I think what I do take a lot of delight in is having somebody stand on what they think is firm ground, and then about two three pages in, sort of have them glance down and go, "Okay, I feel like my feet have sort of sunk." And I'm not on firm ground anymore. And I don't quite know what's happening. This is slowly changing from ground to water. Um, and I think you're right. That sort of helps you question how you see. And I really, I like doing that. And I think it's vital that we consistently question how we're looking. Mm -hmm. Is The Traveller also on one level a story about the different ways people see science fiction, the, the ways different people interpret speculative fiction? The, 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 on the one hand, it is something um, where, where, you know, where magic and the fabulous is central, and on the other hand, where, where you know, things can be broken down into the atoms and things can be sort of you know, built back up. Is, it, is, is that something you were conscious of when you were writing it? No, I don't think I was conscious of any sort of um, commentary on the genre, but I think what The Traveller came from was this... Have you have you ever been to India? I, I haven't, sadly. I, I'd love to go. Okay, so if you ever come to India, we uh, my friend from England visited once and we were in a crowd and we were walking and she's British and she was walking as just normal people would walk, right? Body facing forward, just sort of walking and assuming that there would be personal space around her at some point in time. Um, and in India, when you walk in a crowd, you sort of weave, you sort of move your body, you find the gap and you leave no gaps. That was the instructions <laughs> that I gave her. Find the gap and leave no gaps. Uh, so you sort of move your body um, and you sort of weave through the crowd and you sort of make space or look for space and make that happen. So there's a sort of fluidity to how you move that's just sort of been created by the circumstances. It's just sort of been placed upon you. And I found that sort of bendability and flexibility and also sort of irrationality of a perspective very much in how we see and how we look and how we understand the world um, versus say a more rigorous scientific can be broken down this cannot be possible perspective um, and I was really curious on what it would look like to put both of those in a story and let the reader decide which one they thought was real um, or whether both are simultaneously real at the same time. Right. Um, and I think that interplay was really interesting. 
I, I love that. I love that. Find, find the gap and leave no gap is, 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 is a beautiful instruction. <laughs> <laughs> it was because there were three of us and she kept leaving personal space between me and her or me and the friend and people would find that gap and then sort of fill it up and then they'd get lost. So I was like, find the gap, leave no gap. <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. Before before we move on to Mad Sisters of Essie in a bit more detail, generally when it comes to ideas and and, and sort of, Mm -hmm. and and dreams and ideas, are you you always juggling a lot of different ideas and, and, you know, and and figuring out ways of, you know, making them storyable? You know, are, are the ideas sort of easy to come by? They really were, I think, about five, six years ago. I feel like I always had seven ideas in my head at one point in time and ideas felt cheap and a dime a dozen. Um, That's changed since the pandemic. Um, I feel very much like I have one idea now and that idea is very much connected to a personal question I have about how to live life or understand life. And then... It's just about trying to take that idea and sort of allow it to grow or blossom or unpack into whatever shape it needs to unpack so that I get a novel by the end of it. Um, I found, I don't know if short stories are my form. I used to think they were, um, but now I'm, I'm leaning more and more towards the longer explorations that novels sort of allow you to sort of, you know, really get into the weeds mm-hmm. um, and sort of, push through um, an exam. I just feel like taking up more space (laughs) seems to be my form. Um, So I think... Filling the gaps. Yeah, filling the gaps. Um, So there's definitely, there's a lot more slowness when it comes to ideas now. But I don't think I miss them, which is really interesting. I think I feel really content with this one book that's arrived and that's sitting in the corner of my eye and saying, okay, become the right person to write me. Hmm. And, and, and the book you're talking about there is, is the next one down, down the track. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the one, the next one down the track. Mad Sisters of Essie was a proliferation of ideas. It was it was born in the time where I would wake up with six ideas behind my eyelids every morning. <laughs> so with Mad Sisters of Essie, I think it, I think you do, you were describing it a few years ago as four novellas, mm-hmm. which were kind of underneath one umbrella, and and I, I'm kind of I'm always intrigued by short stories that become novellas, or you know, or how you know, as with you know, Lavania Lavania's um, you know mosaic novel, mm. and so there there is always that kind of interesting sort of tension when someone says oh I'm, I'm not I don't think I'm primarily a short story writer or I think I'm you know more this or more that mm. uh, what was this a very transitional book like finding the shape of Mad Sisters of Essie finding the way to tell that story did did that kind of change the way you were thinking about form quite dramatically oh honestly what a brilliant question uh yeah it it completely turned everything that I knew on its head um, I think I loved the liars we very dearly, but I felt with Mad Sisters, it demanded a shape that was wholly its own. Um, and I was so intent on doing some version of 
I think what really interested me about Mad Sisters is how does the shape of a book embody the theme or theory or concept of the book? How does when you move through the shape from the beginning to the end, how does the story grow in you? How do you sort of become part and parcel of what we're all exploring? And that feeling sort of live inside your body, not just inside your brain. Um, and so to get Mad Sisters right, I kept trying to find a shape that would hold the reader safe, but also be wild enough um, for them to feel a little bit lost and for them to feel a little bit like they're drowning, for them to sort of look at the world around them and be a bit frustrated and stupefied and hopefully in some form of awe um, and finding something that could hold someone safe at the same time as doing all of those things was incredibly hard for me it just took it took 24 drafts <laughs> wow tw 24 tw tw 24 full like drafts of the whole book five different versions in 24 full drafts of the book yeah um, and I think I, That's amazing. I only got this shape, this final shape on the 22nd draft, because I did the 21st draft was my final draft or what I thought was the genius draft. And I was really pleased with it. And I sent it out to all my friends um, and I genuinely expected them to come back with praise. And they, they were very kind, but the overwhelming feedback was, this is ununderstandable. Uh, I have no clue what you're doing. <laughs> um, and so I had to gut the whole 21st draft and rewrite it from scratch. Um, but I'm glad I did, because I think it gave me this shape that kind of holds the readers relatively safe, but keeps the wildness at its core intact. Mm -hmm. That... that that tension between yeah between giving the giving the reader sort of giving the reader the shape while also allowing that wildness to kind of to sort of flow is really really interesting and, and, and i you you you've i think you mentioned um i forget where it was i think it was in that same interview about how um about how voice and perception are really important that the story doesn't the story stays the same but the the voices telling the story change and mm. that that it, was that part of part of it as well that you 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 kind of were you were basically kind of iterating through different different versions of the story told by different voices yeah absolutely i think I think I hit upon in this novel something that's really key for the way in which I write, uh, which is ways of looking. Um, you can have the same scene play out, but it depends on first where you're standing, then it depends the, on the tone and the voice with which you're describing. But then it also depends on the sort of form that you choose. So a dream would tell that so scene differently than a diary extract, uh, than a play. Um, basically, every single form has its own ontological stance and the details that they highlight and what they think is important. Um, and I think what I was trying so hard to do with Mad Sisters of Essie was do a collective. I wanted to give that impression of what it is like to be Indian in the sense of being part of a cacophony of a culture um, and a cacophony of a, of a family and of a bunch of people and a collective. Um, and I wanted a book to sort of become that 
plurality and that collective. And that really focused very much on finding, cementing down different ways of seeing and then finding a voice that could move in and out of those different ways of seeing without dropping the reader. Um, Leave no gaps, basically. Make sure that there's smooth (laughs) transition from one to the other so that like the reader is twisting with you, basically, and not stuck on a shore somewhere when you've set off for another island. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you you, you gave some re- you gave a really great piece of advice for for writers. You said something in in the Bound interview. It was about um, how you you'll you'll read a book sometimes that you're not super interested in, and you know you you kind of you know you're flicking through it, and you said you know look at looking at your own work with that in mind you know where where do i mm. where am i losing interest or where am i or or as you've said you know where are the gaps and i think that's yeah that that's yeah there's um but that's also really exhausting i mean to to be doing that constantly <laughs> is really <Yeah>. exhausting <laughs> deeply exhausting but but cl- clearly clearly took a lot of drafts <laughs> did did it did it really, I, I hope i hope never again i hope never again gareth <laughs> Honestly, but yeah, sorry, go on. Um, I was also thinking you you mentioned sort of family and you mentioned community in in different contexts. What was there? I mean, did it did it take a village to get this book? You know, out. You know, you, you, at the back of the book, there are a lot of people mentioned. A lot of sort of first readers. A lot of people who gave you gave you advice. How? Yeah. How did that? how did that affect the book and also how difficult was it to juggle? Cause I imagine that when you've got, you know, lots of different voices giving you feedback on the book, mm. you've got to also be making those sort of executive decisions about, you know, mm. what, what, what you keep and what you discard in terms of advice. So I got really, so nobody saw the book until the 21st draft. Um, so I, I'm very clear that nobody gets to read what I'm working on because I'm precisely for this reason. I'm actually very bad at filtering out what's relevant or not relevant until I know the story myself mm-hmm. or until I'm familiar enough with the book. So there's definitely a tipping point at which the book is ready for outside eyes. And in this case, it took 21 drafts to be ready for outside eyes. Um, but after that, I think... It was insanely helpful because here are some of the smartest people I know um, and some of the kindest people I know who obviously clearly love me because they read that whole book. Um, And (laughs) the fact that their feedback was all the same tells you that obviously there's just something wrong with the book. When everybody is saying the same thing in different language, it sort of makes it really easy to go back to it and change it. I'm I'm very bad with specific advice. I'm very bad with someone saying this chapter is not working or I would like this character to be more feisty. But I am very good when the reader says you lost me on page 100 or I didn't understand how this happened or I was bored in those sections. I think I understand that sort of feedback really well because I can see myself feeling like that in three months, six months, one year. Um, and then it's easy to sort of fix it for future Tarshan, um, just to make sure that she's focused on it. Um, but the the one thing I do want to say is I gave this, the draft, the 22nd draft went out to Helen Marshall and Samit Basu. Um, and I'm, I cannot explain to you what their encouragement meant at that point in time. They were both 
delighted with the book. Um, and they both just gave me permission. They both just said, this is good. Chase it down. It's doing what it needs to do. It's become what it needs to become. And to have people you respect right. and love and think are brilliant giving you that permission is honestly, it's, it's game changing. Right, right. Chase it down. And, and you did. Yeah. How, how long was it all together from, from, you know, the, uh, was it, was it on a plane you had the idea or, or getting off a plane? I forget the, um, yeah, I was on a plane. I was coming back. I had a two book deal with the publisher that I had to sort of step out of because the second book wasn't working. But I had just come back from a meeting with that publisher um, and I was flying back from Delhi. It was nearly empty, which is the closest to a private jet I've ever experienced. Um, and I was listening to really, really sad songs and crying woefully to myself uh, because I'd been in the worst writer's block for about a year, year and a half by that point. Um, and I was sort of sitting there and the whole first page of what would become Mad Sisters of Essie just wrote itself, um, just wrote itself. You know, when the sentences just flow and they just knit together, it just wrote itself. Um, nothing of that page remains in the final book, <laughs> but, okay. but something came. <laughs> um, and I think I knew at that point that the idea was alive. And if I just paid attention and I just listened, it would be something worth creating. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What, 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 was your, what was your process moving kind of draft to draft or, you know, or, or major version to major version? Were you, were you sort of, you know, pushing it to one side completely and, and writing it, you know, writing it from scratch from memory, or were you kind of, you know, going back and forth and, and sort of, you know, picking stuff from, from the other manuscripts. What was, what was the actual kind of, yeah, the sort of the nuts and bolts of, of doing that? Cause that's, a, you know, it, it's a lot of words. I mean, there must be, you know, th hundreds of thousands of words altogether how, juggling all that. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, what I did was I wrote the first draft, which was a 40,000 word novella that was science fiction and along the theme of Blade Runner. Don't ask me. Um, <laughs> that uh, kind of got done in a couple of months. Um, and I had an agent at the time. I don't anymore, but I had an agent at the time. And she was just like, oh, you know, this one character you mentioned seems like they have an interesting backstory. And I was like, hmm, interesting. What is their backstory? And then that character ended up becoming Wissa. Um, and that her backstory ended up becoming Mad Sisters of Essie. Um, but I think to get there, I first went down the very traditional route of fantasy. So I built out a world. Each of these worlds had different cities in them. Each of these cities had different power structures and political structures. And there, you know, there was history, there was war. I had a whole document sort of writing about how this world was different from our world. Um, and it was very, at one point, the Whale of Babel was the Tower of Babel. So it was inspired by obviously the biblical story. Um, so there was a lot of doing it as straight fantasy for a couple of drafts, then going, okay, this is not working. Let me change it into four interconnected novellas. So sort of changing the world of what I was doing. 
um, for a couple of drafts, just consistently shifting out characters, changing what the story was. Um, I'm basically a panster. So every t- I have to figure it out through the writing. Um, so that just took ages. Um, and then the four interconnected novellas, which had, you know, all these academic essays sort of scattered around, weren't really working either. Um, and then I sort of reworked that whole thing and that became the 21st draft. And that got sent out to readers and that didn't work. And so for the 22nd draft, and I'm really, really proud of myself for being able to do this, but I think it's because it had been it had been three years up until this point of just working on this book. Um, for the 22nd draft, I just sort of sat down with a blank document and I just wrote from the first line to the last line. Um, and I was only able to do that because the story had been sitting in me for so long. All I had to do was think to myself, what does the reader need to know and when? Um, and that's all I thought about for the 22nd draft. What does the reader need to know and when? Um, and then after that, it was just edits. It was a, my personal edit and a HarperCollins edit um, to get those final two drafts done. That's that's that, that's amazing from, from, from a blade runner-esque story to <laughs> to all of those stages there's so, so so much sort of i i i wonder if as you kind of read it you can sort of see like the kind of like, like echoes or, or sort of dna or sort of little traces of things from you know multiple generations back absolutely and i there's there are a few paragraphs that have been kept from the second draft or the third draft. And every time I encounter one of those, I feel such delight because I'm like, you made it. You made it through all those drafts to get into the final book. Go you. <laughs> Survivor, yeah. That's cool. <laughs> uh, we, we, we've got, got, kind of gone back to front, but um, in terms of, we, we haven't really told people, uh, told listeners, yeah, what, Mad Sisters of Essie, uh, what, what is it? Uh, you know, what's the, the dreaded sort of elevator pitch or you know, in a nutshell about this book? So the the line that I keep telling everyone is it's my joyful, mad, very strange novel about two sisters and a quest across three universes. And it's essentially my love letter to wildness. Um, that's the sort of elevator pitch that I've been using. Um, but I think, honestly, the biggest takeaway from Mad Sisters of Essie is... It's a very strange book about two sisters who wanted their story told in a very particular way. It features a festival of madness, a museum of collective memory. It's got a bunch of ghosts that are chained to an island. It's got an absolutely sentient island with walking trees. It's got a whale of Babel with chambers growing in it, and it's going to become a universe of its own. It's just every madcap idea you can think of in a book that hopefully shapes into a coherent story that I love dearly. <laughs> and, and and through through the writing of which you grew enormously, I'm sure. Absolutely. I, it's absolutely been transformative. When I look at this next book that I'm working on, the ways in which I approach it are absolutely shaped by Mad Sisters of Essie. I'm not asking anymore, what is the plot? What is the structure? Will this be interesting? I'm sitting there thinking, okay, what is the heart of you? What makes you alive? And how do I become the right person to capture that sort of aliveness and put it on the page? Hmm. Um, 
Can we can we sidestep slightly to to Calvino? You mentioned Calvino in a couple of places, and um, and in particular, I think lightness and quickness. So I wonder what what was mm. the what, what does that mean to you? And you know the, those two terms, and just Calvino generally. Um, so Invisible Cities was a huge inspiration for Mad Sisters of Essie because I think I read it in Goa in uh, 2019. And I think for the first time I encountered a writer doing such deep philosophy. It's basically a philosophy book um, with the fabulous woven in um, and with sort of lightness in it, enough lightness that it sort of sparks something in your brain. Um, because your first thought when you pick up a philosophy book is not, wow, I can read this for bedtime reading. This is fantastic. Um, but with Calvino's Invisible Cities, it, there is very much that feeling of the wonder of philosophy again, uh, the awe and the magic of looking at the world and the depths of the world. Um, and so I read his six memos for the next millennium, uh, which is his nonfiction book on a series of lectures he did in Harvard from, I think, 1985 to 1986. He died before he could deliver those lectures, but they sort of collected his notes into the book. And he has, he has the two chapters to me that was absolutely instrumental, lightness and quickness. Lightness basically talks about how a lot of literary writing feels that to give its to give its storyline depth, you have to go heavy. You have to sort of make the world denser. And he said that his aim when creating something is to subtract weight, to make things light, um, but not haphazard. He uses a Paul Valerie quote that I absolutely love: "Be light like the bird, not like the feather." Um, which I think is absolutely <laughs> beautiful because it's got that gorgeous sense of a bird swooping and sort of directing where it goes. Um, and so he talked about how you can take all this depth, all this philosophy, all these, these intricate, deep ways of looking at the world and sort of subtract weight from them and sort of lift them so that they float and that you can sort of move through them easily as a reader um, and then the depth sort of resonates in the reader because they're bringing their own brain to it and their own mind to it um, I mean coming back to that same sort of metaphor of hitting a song ball and having it echo in you it's about choosing those right words that can sort of get the echoes going inside the body of the reader um, and I found that fascinating I, like nobody had told me you could do that. <laughs> Everybody told me you had to make it really dense. And I was like, wow, this is allowed. And then with quickness, he talks about these Greek myths and these fables um, and perspective and movement. And it made me think a lot of momentum in a novel. How does a novel move? How does a novel flow? How does it take that reader from that first page, lift them up on a wave and then sort of deposit them on that last page. Like what is, what are the dynamics that are making that novel move essentially? Mm. And quickness was really interesting to me as a thought process because my temptation is always to slow and to look very closely and very deeply. And I think there's space for that, but there's also space for using lightness and quickness together to sort of get your reader to, flow through the story and experience it on one level and then they can experience it again on another level if they come back to it wow 
yeah that 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 idea of 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 yeah of momentum and also when i know knowing what the engine or the heart is what were, were the because you have you know in mad sisters of essie you have the different the different parts the the connective the connections whether kind of you know clear or sort of subconscious were were they you know you mentioned kind of writing that final draft sort of you know in a in like a sort of in, in a mad rush <laughs> but the you know what what was that was that something that you were kind of you know working back in as you edited those you know the sort of transitions to keep that quickness or or were they just coming out you know straight away because you knew the story so well by that by that point I think by the 22nd draft, they were coming out straight away. I think in the 21st draft, they weren't there at all. So I think I knew automatically that this is where the reader would be dropped in multiple points in the book. Mm -hmm. This is what I sort of need to put back in to kind of carry them from this one landing point to the next one. Um, the one thing I didn't get right in the 22nd draft um, was the beginning of the book. And the very first page of the book was the very last page I wrote for it, um, which was written on the 24th draft. Um, I just couldn't get that opening right. I didn't know how to lead you in well enough to sort of give you an outside perspective of the whale before I push you into the whale of Babel. Um, and I managed to get that 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 first page on the draft with Harper, in, on the rewrite with HarperCollins, sorry, the edit with HarperCollins. Um, but other than that, I think the transitions between the story were much easier and much smoother. Hmm. That's, that's super, super, super interesting. Um, thinking about, thinking about that next book, I, I, I obviously, you, you can't say too much about something which is, you know, still forming, but mm -hmm. is, uh, is that idea, those ideas of lightness and quickness and, and also the confidence you've, you know, you, you've gained sort of, you know, getting to the, the, getting to the sort of the end of, of the writing process of Mad Sisters of Essie. Yeah. How, how is, how, how is the shape of that looking? You know, what, what do readers, what, what, what do readers have to look forward to? What do I have to look forward to? <laughs> <laughs> um, so it doesn't have a shape as yet. I think um, quickness and lightness have become now part of how I write. It's really beautiful when knowledge of the brain sort of moves into knowledge of the body. Um, and it's kind of kept safe by your body rather than by your thinking mind. And I feel like quickness and lightness and understanding shape have kind of just become now part of how my muscle memory understands how a sentence should sort of write itself on the page. Um, but I think, I think with this novel, I just moved it. It was set in Florence um, on the outskirts of Florence. And just one week back, I lifted the whole thing and set it in Bombay in about the 1890s. Um, and it's going to be, have you ever seen a Grimm's dark fairy tale, like a Grimm fairy tale? You know those illustrations that came with it? Those gorgeous ones? I think I know the ones you mean. Yeah, I can't remember who, who yeah, yeah. There's, there are two of them. There's like an Alan, there's an Alan and there's someone else. There's two people who did them and I will get their names correct at some point. Uh, but they're, they're so imprinted in my brain as the essence of a fairy tale, right? Because they mm -hmm. were the first illustrations that I ever saw. There were all these sketches with pencil or ink rather. Um, and they're so ethereal, but so sort of dark and twisted. Um, so take that same vibe of those sketches, but set it in Bombay. Um, so that kind of Bombay fairy tale is what 
people can hopefully expect from the book. Um, but I'm still in the process of, this is going to sound extremely silly, but I'm still in the process of talking to the center of the book and figuring out what it wants to be and what it wants to say. I know it's there. I just, I'm not the right person as yet to get it on the page. Mm-hmm. Did, so so do you think this one, maybe not so many drafts, but maybe, you know, it'll, it'll, it still needs more time. It, it, it's, I think it was, I think you said it was three or four years to get the liar's weave. It was a, and then this one, the Mantis of Essie was a few years. Do you, do you feel like that, 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 so you, so you need, you need maybe to go through that kind of writing and rewriting to, to find that, to find that heart? I do definitely think I need to write and rewrite because I don't plan um, and I've tried, but it just doesn't work. I need to sort of discover the story through language. So there is always going to be a messier process than a writer who's just good at sort of thinking it out and then working towards it through language rather than discovering it through language. Um, but I'm I'm very much hoping it's not 24 drafts um, and another five years. Uh, but I do think there's just honestly no way to tell. If you'd asked me three months ago, I would have told you this book is pretty much done and I just need to write it and we're fine and it will be over in six months. <laughs> <laughs> and now two weeks back, I just changed the whole setting and probably the plot line and almost all of the characters. So I think I'm at that stage now in the new year where I just need to sit with a notebook and start writing longhand and just see where the story takes me. I, I love I love that if we'd spoken a couple of weeks ago, it would have been Florence. And speaking now, it's 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 moved. <laughs> yeah. And and that and, and the sort of the, the 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 way that sounds so easy that you've just sort of transplanted the novel. There's you 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 figuring out where to put it, who to put in it, and it's sort of I, I think that's um yeah that's that's that takes a lot of takes a lot of um sort of energy and also you know obviously imagination. But I, I imagine it must be. It must be kind of hard, surely, to kind of keep track of. I mean, you've you've got sort of, or, or or do you just have this sort of such a strong feeling for what the book is that as all of this other stuff changes, that that's always there, kind of lighting stuff behind it. I think so. I think I think I have a sense of, and I didn't I didn't necessarily have it with the Liars Reef, but I did with Mad Sisters. I have a sense of, I kind of feel it like a knot in my heart. Um, and when something feels alive, it feels like it's being pressed. It's, it's, a, it's a bodily reaction rather than just an intellectual reaction. When you look at something and go, oh, that's interesting. It has to be the body that responds to it rather than just the brain being like, oh, that's academically interesting. And I think once I find something my body is excited by and that, that not in that heart is pressed with, then I think my whole task is to give it characters, settings, plot line, all of those things that don't sort of bury it, but instead allow it to shine and grow and get tendrils and become, you know, bloom basically, or turn into a horrible knotty forest that tries to drown or murder its reader. <laughs> <laughs> or is right. I mean, <laughs> Someone pointed out the other day that I always have some sort of landscape in my books that's trying to kill its characters. And that's absolutely hilarious <laughs> because it's true and I hadn't realized it. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
there's a, there's a story of yours, a rule book for creating a universe, which is uh, was first mm-hmm. in Magical Women, an, an anthology, and mm-hmm. it was republished in Podcastle. Uh, uh, I'll be talking to Lavanya mm-hmm. uh, about that as well as uh, in a meeting. Uh, in the in in the new year. Oh, wonderful! Along with one of Indra's stories, yeah, we're going to be looking at that with some with some interzone readers, um, and yeah, w- w- what's the what's the story behind that that one, and and how does it sort of sort of how does it fit into the tapestry of your work of your writing? So I actually think Rubo for creating a universe, Traveller, and Mad Sisters of Essie are all from the same sort of period of writing um, in my life, where wow. I was creating very large alternate realities, um, sort of seeing how much lightness I could get away with without sort of losing the reader, um, and how much liquid chaos. I could sort of pull off um, without someone chucking the book at my head. Um, so I feel like those three book, those three, those two short stories in that book is very much of that time period of my life. And I had started Mad Sisters of Essie by then, um, and I had already moved into this liquid, fantastical state. And Rule Book for Creating a Universe was my first short story while I was writing Mad Sisters of Essie. And so I think I was taking the principles that I was sort of playing around with, with Mad Sisters of Essie and saying, okay, do you work on a shorter form? Um, Can I get a reader to sort of follow me for 3,000 words uh, while doing something liquid, um, but also focused on the interpersonal, which is very much a focus on Mad Sisters of Essie as well. Um, And I think the reception that story got, like the love and the care and people who connected with it, gave me a lot of courage for Mad Sisters of Essie. Um, It made me feel like, okay, this can work. It works in a shorter form. It probably will work in a longer one as well. Hmm. Uh, what 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 else have you yeah what what have you been reading recently that that sort of has has maybe had that kind of impact on you that you're kind of hoping that readers have with your book that kind of not maybe or that kind of that kind of just sort of have have left an impression in you that you could recommend to to listeners um so i think in terms of what's influencing my work right now there's definitely a lot of um female fiction that's honestly just brilliant fiction like I would highly recommend Lauren Groff's The Matrix Um, I really really enjoy Lily King's Euphoria Anne Patchett pretty much does brilliant books every book that she touches Um, I think I've been really curious about their perspectives and how they write people and how they write relationships um, and how they hold those relationships sacred or not sacred. Um, and so I think I've been, a lot of my conversations have been with those very literary books and saying, okay, what happens if we throw some magic in there and give somebody more power? How do we, how does that sort of change the game interpersonally and relationship wise? Um, but in terms of what people are doing in the Indian sector that I think is just mentally exciting me um, because I think there's so many books coming out now from uh, South Asia, not just India, that's basically inverting and scrambling and melting categories and sort of eating them alive, mm. which I delight in. Um, and so the books that I absolutely adore is The Jinbot of Shanti Pot by Samet Basu. 
Um, the last dragoners of Bo Bazaar by Indra Pamitas, he describes it as normal people in Calcutta with dragons. And it's just honestly, it's breathtaking. Um, the 10% Thief by Lavanya Lakshmi Narayan, who you'll be speaking with, who's absolutely a genius. And sometimes sometimes the way she looks is honestly astonishing for me. Um, and The Saint of Bright Doors by Vajra Chandrasekhar, who's just sort of taken fantasy and been like, hey, I'm going to remake this whole thing into whatever I want it to be. And it's it's beautiful and brilliant. Mm. Some very, very strong recommendations. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Tasha Mehta. It, it, it's been, a, it's been a, a, a wonderful conversation about the about your writing and all sorts more. I, I hope that the next time you have something out, you can come back on. It would be wonderful. I would absolutely love to. This has been incredible. Thank you so much for these questions and this conversation. It was great. You've been listening to Interzone Pod with me, Gareth Jelly, and my guest today, Tarshan Mehta. Find out more about Interzone at interzone.press and find out more about Interzone's free online sister zine, IZ Digital, at interzone.digital. Thanks for listening. See you next time.